Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, guys, we're going to start right out with introductions. Right off the bat. Okay. Michael Tuis, professor at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. So that's how you say that, to us. To us, yeah. yeah. Got um, it. Yeah. The, my computer keeps calling me two E's, but yep. uh, yeah. It's, and um, I uh, serve as a Caesar Clayburg Wildlife uh, at the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute. And I've been there since 1981 as a professor doing cat biology and cat research. Uh, cats worldwide? We've done some work in Southeast Asia on some cats. Uh, Clouded leopards, marbled cats, uh, golden cats—cats cats you've probably never heard of. Yeah, and uh, and and le- leopard cats, some other cats. Okay, and your compatriot here. I'm Neil Wilkins. Uh, I'm the CEO of the East Foundation, and we're an outfit that's uh, about 217,000 acres of private lands in Texas that has been set aside to serve as an area for research, education, and outreach mainly for wildlife conservation. And how close, because we, we first connected, I feel, around the, the fact, I can't remember how it lined up, or maybe it was coincidence that we were going down to the Eturia Ranch. I think so. Yeah, you were And it just to happened Eturia to be ranch. that um, you guys were located around there. Yeah, we've got one of our ranches, the El Sal's Ranch, is, uh, backs up real close to the Eturia Ranch. Okay. So... Yeah, we tried to. Uh, I was hoping to arrange some kind of visit. We were down there, but it never worked out. 
Yeah. Now, uh, oh, and also Cal's here on a computer screen. He's going to have an entirely diminished role. <laughs> as. Yes. It's just, you know how it goes, Cal. Yes. So I've got to send some bad news to one of the peop- ladies that I work with. She wanted me to get Cal's autograph. So I'm I'm going to have to go back and tell her that she's not going to get it. So. I think you just provide an address and he'll send it. Okay. Um, we're also have well, a mutual use that f- e-signature thing. <laughs> Will that work, Michael? We also Docu-sign. have a re- oh sorry. We also have a common um, Jim Heffelfinger. Yeah. What a loser that guy is. <clears throat> I, I agree. Yeah, he was one of our. our <laughs> he barely got out of graduated from our university about 25 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> no, he's he's stellar. We're, we're really proud of him. Uh, we used to do a thing. We used to do live shows back when people did things with each other. And we would have these trivia contests. Like we had these pre-shows. We'd do like these VIP pre-shows. And we'd have trivia. And one of our favorite trivia questions, because it always like really stumped people, is we would hit them with, I can't remember if it was, I can't remember the numbers now, but it was like name five of the six or name the six wild cat species of the United States of America. And a mat, guess which two in descending order were most likely to stump everybody? Of the cats? Yeah. Guess which two like no one ever got. If they if they got one of those two, it was are you talking about north of Rio Grande or North America? In <clears throat> the present day US. Present so we would day. hit people with like name I can't remember how we would phrase it. Let me just think in my head real quick. I'd say Jaguarini Nosla. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, we would do North America. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you do North America, that includes Mexico. You got to add Jaguar yep. and, Mar- and Margay. Yeah, but you have to have Jaguar even if it's the U.S. And Margay? Mark? Yeah, Margay. And, and there was only one record of a Margay in Texas, and it was in the, the 1850s. Oh, see, we were screwing the – I feel like we gave people stuff that they didn't deserve. Do they include the house cat? No, we would we would point out that. Okay. So let, let me just walk it through. To hell with the, how we ask the question. Let's walk it through. <laughs> sure. Links. Everybody knows that. Not everybody, but a lot of people know. There's a there's like one wild cat in Alaska, though. I, I think it's rumored and maybe substantiated that a mountain lion or two has finagled its way into southeast Alaska. One was found all the way on the Mackenzie Delta with its ears frozen off or something like that. So they get around. But you have lynx, mountain lion, bobcat. Yes. Jaguar, jaggerundi, ocelot. But you're telling me there's another one I don't even know about? I didn't heard of well, this well, damn the, cat. What's Marge, it called? It's a, it's a baby ocelot. It's like a half the size of an ocelot, but it looks almost the same. <clears throat> and we, we did, I guess, one of the first studies on them in Mexico and published uh, an article about five years ago in the Sierra Tamaulipas. There was a population of markets there that, that we studied. So it's like a little 10-pound wildcat. Yeah, 8 to 10 pounds. Bigger eyes than ocelots, but everything else is, is very similar. Talk, uh, walk us through, like, what's up with an ocelot. Okay. And, and why is it no one knows about no, – why does no one know you have ocelots running around? <clears throat> Do you think most people understand know what an ocelot is? No. Because I'm I, surprised that – I've been working at this 35 years, and I feel like I'm still failing getting the message out. No. What an ocelot is. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I remember when I was young reading uh, how to trap books all the time. Okay. Old how to trap books. 
And I remember I would always be like, what in the hell? Because you would see they'd have a section now and then on catching, and it would mention like an ocelot. Well, I we may have looked at the same trapping book. I had this one book in the early 1980s, and it had a chapter on trapping ocelots. And it's the only one I've ever seen. And it mentioned they're easy to trap. And sure enough, they turned out to be pretty easy to trap for me. You just the problem is you have to find out where they are. Once you find out where they are, they're easy to trap. Yeah. So talk people through like what what it is and where it lives. Yeah, it's a, where it used to live and where it lives. Okay, the ocelots uh, of the forty species of cats, the most beautiful. It's it's just a fact. It's uh, that's an uh, objective reality. Objective reality. Um, <clears throat> it's about a twenty pound cat, about two feet tall. The, the, at least the cats in, in Texas, United States, uh, the females are 18 to 22 pounds and the males are 22 to 25 pounds. Um, and they're beautifully striped in, in, in spots and rosettes. It's really an interesting tangle of, of of markings that provide the ultimate camouflage, I think, for, for a cat. Yeah, it's well, like, I mean, it, it, is, its, is its coat different than the jaguars besides just being a smaller version? Uh, yeah, I think it's much more complex than a jaguar. Okay. A jaguar has the rosettes with a dot in the center of it. Ocelots have have spots, uh, rosettes, all kinds of, and then and some of the rosettes form chains to where it looks like chains going down the shoulder and down the back. It's <clears throat> and it's such a a very difficult animal to try to describe. You can, you you can't do it. And from one side of the ocelot to the other has a different spotting pattern, and each one's like a fingerprint. They're very unique. Uh, so it helps us when we use cameras to, to census the population. We, we can identify individual ocelots that way. So uh, they. Well, uh, well, how would you describe the general color scheme? Yellow, yellowish background with a little bit of whitish underneath. And then, um, like many of the cats, they have two very distinct facial stripes. Um, and then. Um, and then these very distinct black, and then the tail is about an eighteen-inch tail, with black rings around it, and that and that's all very similar to Margay as well, but uh, except smaller version for Margay. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> they're an incredible cat. Their distribution goes all the way from northern Argentina to southern United States. They used to occur, and there there've been a couple of males identified in Arizona. Never a breeding population in Arizona, but there've always been a breeding population in Texas. And the range, uh, one of my hobbies is collecting uh, uh, reports of leopard cats, is what they were called in the 1800s. Oh, okay. So from 1830 to 1880, you have leopard cats identified in almost every almost every river in Texas up to East Texas. And, and and they so they they really like the dense brush cover that would be a, along a riparian area, so I can imagine distinct populations of ocelots on every major river, Brazos, Trinity, Colorado River, into East Texas, and um, so so they did occur in Louisiana and Arkansas, at least a, a record or two there. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Now, are they do they show up in the oral traditions in Native American oral traditions? Well, the Mayans and Aztecs, they do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the Mayans and Aztecs worship jaguars, uh, very important in their in their religion. But the Aztecs, uh, they kind of recognize the, uh, the Asad as a, a smaller godlike symbol, or it was smaller in, their, in the symbolism back then. The, the jaguars, if, if you're ever eaten by a, a jaguar, you, you went into the portal to hell. 
Uh, so you don't want to be eaten by a jaguar. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's that's it's really rich tradition all the way down to I think the Incas even had had some of that uh, jaguar worshiping. But the that's, ocelots that's, were that's the a minor. weird deal where cause of cause of death that's not self inflicted is rewarded with hell. Yeah, I don't think anyone likes to get uh, no. That doesn't pop up very pieces. often, man. Yeah, those uh, it, it hurts to be uh, bitten by a cat. Yeah. <laughs> when you say that they um, bumped into Arkansas, perhaps, or bumped into Louisiana, perhaps, um, those come from just very, like, small, like, single references or whatever. That's right. They're, the type specimen for the subspecies albescens comes from Louisiana. Oh, it does. Yeah. And and, it's, and sometimes I get a little mixed up. It may have been Arkansas, but it, back when it was Louisiana. Shortly after being Louisiana purchased, so they called it maybe Louisiana, but the type specimen is from there. And then how many, at once upon a time, how many were running around? It's anyone's guess. Uh, no, really, the the records that you, you uh, have from the 1800s is one instance, one anecdote. I shot a leopard cat or I found a leopard cat. With a couple exceptions, there's uh, one trapper uh, who, who reports uh, – Several leopard cats in his catch at the mouth of the San Bernard River. So, where does that sit? It's south of Houston, about about thirty forty miles. And 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 uh, so so that kind of uh, is really believable. To, to like believe. he was logging his season's catch. Uh, at least that. Yeah, I don't know if a whole season, but it, it was very probably a very large population in that area at that time. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, and and the spelling. It was really funny how you, the anecdote there and the or the narrative was, was he misspelled everything you could misspell, but he got leopard cats and bears there, and then another one was uh, oh the the hunter that led the Roosevelt hunts uh, and he came out of Louisiana went to Texas, and then um, uh, Lily, Ben Ben Lily is he the know. guy that ran the um. Is he the guy that was tangled up in the whole teddy bear thing? No. Oh, that wasn't that. No, owner. no, okay. no. Yeah. Now Ben Lilly's a character. I mean, he would never sleep indoors. He always slept outdoors. And he was a tremendous cat dog person. He did went from Bears, Louisiana, spent 1906, collected a few ocelots south of of uh, Houston, and then went on and made became famous in in Arizona, leading a hunt with Teddy Roosevelt, but. Interestingly, a couple of those samples that he collected south of Houston and sent off to the Smithsonian, we, we got DNA from the bones of, of the skull from those cats. So oh. we, we analyzed it 100 years later. It's kind of interesting. To, yeah. To, but Ben Lilly, if, if anyone ever, I mean, that's, that's an interesting read just there. So if, if, you do, if you can't get a good sense like how many ocelots were ever running around in what's now the U.S. Well, we do now. We have a good idea for the U.S. What was running around? Oh, no, no, not previously. Yeah. No. No, it, it was probably many hundreds, at least, maybe a few thousand. But can't you guys, when you're doing genetic work, can't you guys find, um, like if you got an old bone from 100 years ago, isn't there some process by which you get the mitochondrial DNA from that, and you can tell the effective breeding population size by like how many how many contributing mothers are in a population. Yes, we've done that. Uh, my student Yanya Nechka, uh, 
is now a professor at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, but he, he published four really good ocelot genetic papers, and one of them was looking at effective population size. Uh, and another one was just where he documented the, the genetic erosion that's been going on from 1985 to 95 and then 2005. And we've had a very steep decline in, in genetic variability in the ocelot populations, the two populations that occur in Texas. <clears throat> They've lost um, something that's called private alleles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where very few alleles are, are very specific to that population. We would find only one or two in the Texas populations and, and compared them with our research in Mexico where we'd find 30 private alleles. Um, so it's just uh, we've lost heterozygot- genetic heterozygosity. And then the the effective population size is, is very few uh, down to – well, we've only really sub sampled a subset of the population, so so it, but it was very few. And then I had another student, Jennifer Corn, look at uh, inbreeding, and we found four or five inbreeding events in both of the populations. So they've got they've got problems. Can you walk through real quick? I imagine because you've been in the cat business so long, you probably know this story better than anybody, or at least as well as anybody. What happened with um, different cat? but it has like the inbreeding wasn't the Florida Panther like severely inbred and that led to taking lions out of Texas and putting them in Florida. Yes. That, that's, that's the, the nut of, of the case. Yeah. And is that, I, I want to at some point get to like, why we can't, why you can't just dump a bunch of them in Texas now from Mexico and have the problem taken care of. Yeah. That's a good story to have in a second. Yeah, right. the, <laughs> but one of my former students, David Schindel is now the, the Florida Panther lead for fish and wildlife service. And, and, uh, um, so, so yeah, they, the, the Panthers, I think at one time were estimated 35 or 50 individuals. And then there was a, a, a discussion about bringing Texas and ended up moving a, a, eight or more lions from West Texas into to Florida to help with the genetic erosion and increase genetic yeah. variability. And, uh, that, that has been very successful. My understanding is, is they've really, uh, the d- demography of the population has, has really expanded and I think it's been helpful by most assessments. Yeah, it was kind of a deal with the devil a little bit because Yeah, there's one argument, one side would say we want to keep the pure Florida panthers, yeah, the Corii with subspecies, and then the other said we don't care, we just want Florida panthers to exist in Florida. And those were the two basic arguments there. Uh I didn't realize that that you saw that ocelot populations were still collapsing or continued to collapse like from as recently as 1985 to present. But walk through what happened to what happened to this cat to get it into trouble in the first place. Well, I think the first settlers came and settled on the rivers where the ocelot populations were. And since we've already said ocelots are easy to trap, they are, and, and to kill, right off the bat, you had that conflict between humans and, and people. And so over over the years, uh, uh, there was pretty extensive poisoning going on in the 1950s, 40s, 50s for predator control to help benefit game species. Why were they pissed at ocelots? Or they- well, it was just universal. Everything, yeah. strychnine had killed just about everything. Because ocelots, they probably kill chickens and stuff, but they're not going to take down cattle or anything. That's the worst thing about an ocelot is it kills chickens. And so if, if you're not a chicken aficionado, who cares? You know, and I'd rather have ocelots. But they're, they're very, they're very uh, um, 
a very peaceful cat. Uh, I mean, and that's probably one reason they're easy to catch. And a lot of people had them as pets, but they don't they don't hurt livestock. They don't hurt game species. Uh, they're, they're and I think their gentle demeanor. They're a very popular pet in the 1960s. Um, I, I know some of your audience is probably too young to remember who Don Meredith was. Yep. But he was he was one of the, the first uh, commentator on 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 uh, Monday Night Football, and he was the the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys from 1961 to 68, I believe. He had a pet ocelot. His name was Pepe. And uh, and so he 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 really enjoyed that cat, and he came home after losing to the Washington Redskins for a weekend, and he got a concussion during that game, and only to find out that the housekeeper had let the the cat out and it got ran over. Oh, so it's kind of double double loss that weekend for Don Meredith. But a lot of people had him as pets in the in the fifties and sixties, and thought it was a a glamorous thing to do. Uh, if you kept him indoors, though, you regretted it because they would spray. Urine all on everything, and they have a very distinctive smell in the urine, uh, and you, you don't want to live there for too long after that happens. Was that still legal in our country in the sixties that you could just take an animal like that out of the wild and turn him into a pet? Yes, in the sixties, yeah, uh, they didn't become endangered internationally until nineteen seventy three, and nationally until nineteen eighty two. There was a, a overlook; they missed adding it to the list in seventy seventy three. But yeah, uh, and people have had them pets even in the in the eighties and nineties, and and I you may still be able to do it if you have all the different permits that's required. It's it's very more hmm. difficult to do it now. Where do they sit on the Endangered Species Act list now? Are they listed as threatened or listed as endangered? They're listed as endangered. Okay. Yeah, fewer than a hundred left in the United States. What at what year did you take notice of them? In that little film you guys put together, it mentions how. When you first got interested and people told you that you wouldn't be able to catch one because there weren't any to be caught. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, a professor that Neil and I share in, in common was Dr. Jack Inglis. He, he was one of uh, my wildlife professors, and he bet me a, a bottle of Jack Daniels that I'd never catch an ocelot. And, um, and so luckily I did on uh, March 2nd, 1982, which was Ocelot Day. Happens to be Texas Independence Day, by the way, but... Uh, so I, I caught the ocelot on that day, and a year later, Jack Inglis bought me the bottle of Jack Daniels. Why did it take him a whole year to do it? Well, we only met at a conference a year oh, later, okay. and we drove around Austin, and he bought that bottle of Jack Daniels. And every time my students and I caught a new species of cat for research, we'd take a shot out of that bottle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we've had over 12 shots. We've studied over 12 different kinds of cats, and, so I, we, and I hope to have a few more shots coming out of it. Walk through... Uh... Walk through sort of, you know, like a career path of someone, like your interest in career or whatever, to where you got to be like, I'm going to try to catch an ocelot. I'm going to try to trap an ocelot, which supposedly aren't here anymore. Yeah, if, if you want to do it as student, um, uh, you know, is that, is that what you mean? Kind of if, like How did you get in the situation to even care? I Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think serendipity and luck had to play a lot with it. But I think also hard work puts you in that position. Uh, to 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 be at least noticed by your, your the next level the professors that were willing to take a chance on me, and uh, and but I've been very lucky throughout my career I think very fortunate to 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 do what I'm able to do, but I was in the right place the the my masters I did okay on on my masters project so they offered a PhD which involved ocelots, 
And then I, I got with the old trappers the first few months and, and, and the people that have trapped the ocelots uh, for 40 years and kind of learned a lot of techniques from them. And, and then I hit the right place. Uh, and, uh, and that's why it came down to is just finding the right place. Did you grow up hunting and trapping? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I hunted, um, and yeah, I can think of a little trapping possums and things when I was younger and, and did some s- s- limited hunting when I was a kid. I did, uh, some bird hunting, dove hunting duck and, but I, I've gotten where I, I'm so obsessed now with cats. I don't do any, I can't fish. I can't hunt. I can't do anything except read or study about cats. And that, that's, a. I probably need some psychoanalysis for that, but, but, uh, but I, so that was, yeah, I, I was in the outdoors. I was a bird watcher. I don't tell, I consider myself mammalogist. And I learned early on that people, well, that ornithologist didn't have as much fun as mammalogist had. And uh, so I, I ended up becoming a mammalogist instead of ornithologist, at least in my opinion. I, they, they may argue that with, with you. Back in the, so you caught your first one in 82. Mm-hmm. And what was it, what was the reason that you needed to go out and catch an ocelot? We got a contract from the Fish and Wildlife Service to, to study ocelots since they were putting them on the endangered species list that year. They wanted to have a little bit of information and found to find out even if they existed in the state. I had several uh, gray hairs and professors tell me they, they no longer occurred in Texas, that they've been extirpated. But people weren't just hitting them with cars and stuff? No, not uh, well, if they were, they weren't being reported back then. Because that's the weird thing about with Florida Panthers. Right, it'd be like, oh, there's only thirty left, but then every year three of them get hit by cars. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's why it's so hard to picture that you could hide. It's a parallel with ocelots there, but the the refuge, Laguna Escosa Refuge, where I began some of that work, the the, the refuge staff didn't know they had them there. They knew they had them uh, in the mid '60s when they mm. did some predator trapping. They found some, but they'd gone ten years and didn't even realize they had them. And they probably have always had about seven to fourteen ocelots. Even now, are they just super secretive? They're secretive, the nocturnal, uh, uh, and they 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 like this. They and they enjoy really dense brush, brush that no one wants to walk into. So those three factors alone make some. A lot of ranchers will not allow. A few ranchers have ocelots, but they didn't know it because of those three factors. I would just think that with. I mean, I guess it's testament to how few there maybe were. I would think that with guys out predator calling and coyote and bobcat trappers, that unless, if there was one left, someone would have it. Well, again, you, you're right. Uh, um, I, I consider roads a very effective sampling technique. Yeah. You know, if, if the population is somewhere, they, they're going to get ran over. That's why Harry and the Hendersons would happen for real if there were Bigfoot. Now, that's I've used that same Example, like if and they I, were I, there, someone would, would run over them, and, and it wouldn't be like a secrety thing. No, and then there would I just start be a getting, big dead one in the road. <laughs> and then when it, when I expressed my doubt about that, I start getting hate mail from Michigan, Wisconsin. So I don't talk about Bigfoot anymore. You had to quit. No, yeah, you don't want to talk about Bigfoot. They, there's some serious people out there still convinced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> would that be in your like as a mammologist? That'd be right in your wheelhouse, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I'm, I'm going a different direction. Okay. You don't even want to be implicated in this conversation. I'm kind of figuring out how to get out of it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyways, I was saying, with all these ways in which they could, that ocelots, um, yeah, I guess the point of what I'm saying is this. I always struggle with 
Um, Lazarus, spe- you know, this trying, I don't know if you guys use the term Lazarus species, like species that rise from the dead, right? So, like, black footed ferret, um, it's gone. And it's like, holy shit, it's not gone. A guy's dog just dragged one right. in and the TT Wyoming, you know? And then, uh, the Tasmanian devil. What's that? What's that animal called, Cal? I'm trying to engage with Cal. I'm throwing him a. I'm throwing him an easy one. What is the animal that uh, is most similar to a Tasmanian devil? No, they they have a better name than Tasmanian devil. Like so, the tiger. The ti- Tasmanian, Tasmanian tiger. tiger. Ti- that's what I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah. Tasmanian tiger. Theracine yeah. or something like that, right? Right. Yeah. That thing. Yeah. That is. That's like the saddest picture. Of all is like the this cool looking striped dog cat combo that is in a jail, and it's like <laughs> the last one. But people have been every year feeling like they saw one. Yes, you know. Well, that that's the equivalent of jaguarundis in in Texas in the United States, throughout the South. I, I to this day I have biologists. And I, and I, we were just talking about it. I've had five or six what I consider famous biologists argue with me about jaguarundis occurring throughout south, the South, Florida, Texas. In my opinion, jaguarundis don't exist, haven't existed in Texas since ni- the last road killed in 1986. But do you have a lo- – In 86, someone ran over a jaguarundi in a, Texas? A, well, that was, yeah, in April of 1986. Really? Two, two miles east of Brownsville. Right oh, over. so very close to not being in Texas. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Well, they were never were never located north of the Rio Grande Valley anyway, although people think they occur throughout the South. Hmm. So there you are. It's the early 80s. Some people say they're maybe gone. I would have been, they're definitely gone. If someone thinks they're maybe gone, I'd say they're gone. Oh, you know what? Here's another one everybody's still looking for. What? The ivory-billed woodpecker. Yeah. Well, I saw one when I was a, back when I was a bird watcher, by the way. That's what year? year? It would be uh, early 70s. Oh. Yeah. I, I thought I saw one anyway. But it, I'm sure it was a polyated one. But no one's laid eyes on one since, I don't know, but every year people go looking for them. Yeah. Yeah. And they see what we what we call, where I'm from, pileated woodpeckers. Yeah. Pileated woodpeckers. And, and it's the same phenomenon, I think. The, the Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. The, here's another thing. To have a viable population of any species, you need 50 or more individuals to live for a hundred years. Huh. Okay. But who gets to make that? Who, who gets to say that that's the truth? That, that came out. Michael Soule, 1980. It was like the beginning of, of MVPs, minimum viable populations of discussions. And it has since be- became much more complicated since then. But that so was he's kind like, of the, so he's like, hear ye, hear ye. Yeah. If you have 50 of something. Well, and that's a computer modeling will show that for okay. a lot of species. And, and and now it's called population viability analyses. Okay. We've done two different PhD projects on that. You put in all these life parameters, and you can estimate how long a population of a certain size will persist over time. I guess I'm incredulous of it because I could see if you said for large mammals, for instance, it would take a population of X, Right. Right. For large marine mammals, it would require, and it, but if we're talking about a plant, do you know what I'm saying? It's Generation hard. time is an important part of a mouse yeah. versus an elephant. Yeah. yeah, and it's part of this modeling. It's there are a lot of variables that go into this modeling, but it, there's there's been much research done on that. But the, the the gist of it is is if you have a very small population, 
it's it's very unlikely to to survive survive a long period of time. So so I kind of call it a viable population of a Bigfoot or Loch Ness monster. You probably need at least fifty of them. If you're, you're going to have fifty Loch Ness monsters, you probably need several locks yep. to, to have a population. Survive. I went to that so, lock one time and looked out upon it. Didn't see anything. Um, man, I wish you were more. Uh, <laughs> I wish you'd like to talk about Bigfoot because I could, here's the thing, in talking to you, I could get better at arguing with Bigfoot people. Yeah, yeah, no, I... I I'll, I'll just call you sometime. I, I and you sent could those letters. A, you could give me a crash course on, on what one might say in an argument with Bigfoot people to make you seem more right. I'll forward you to those threatening <laughs> letters that I got. So, the viable uh, population question uh, is like, so right now, you know, like when you're looking at wolf reintroduction, like the lowest folks are willing to go is a hundred animals. That's like the bare minimum. And there's a lot of folks that are, it'd be like pulling teeth to get them to go below 250 animals. And that's a pretty fast reproducing animal. You know, I was just re- doing a lot of research on uh, Australian uh, lyre birds, which are pretty darn cool. That's a songbird, um, big songbird that doesn't even get around to thinking about reproduction on the male or female side till they're between five and seven years old. And it's like, think at all the stuff you got to survive to get to five or seven years old when you're a ground dwelling songbird. In a country with and six million feral cats or whatever. Feral there. cats, Yeah. <laughs> mongooses feral cats yeah uh kids with slingshots bb guns um and so (laughs) like how does that i understand like the the model was set up to be manipulated but it is something that seems like it it is kind of an arbitrary number well that's another variable that goes into the model is is age to first reproduction and and what it turned out for ocelots and, and and many of the cats is how many? How long does a breeding female um, produce young, and and how many young do they produce? And ocelots typically only have one to two young, compared to bobcats of two to four, and and then so and ocelots reproduce well into the years. Uh, Bill Swanson, who is an expert on ocelot reproduction, Cincinnati Zoo, will have reproductively active males well beyond ten years, and same thing for for females. They they last. Uh, reproductives. So there are all these variables kind of go under these models. Um, and I'm by no means an expert on them. That's why, why we have other people do them. But, and it's really, and you really have to take it with a lot of uh, grains of salt. It, it just kind of really gives you an ideal of, of say, I'd rather put in 250 wolves than 100 wolves because of these factors. And for us, it helped us identify what what kind of information do we need most and what it turned out to be was how many young does a female produce for how many years? And so it, it really kind of guides you into what kind of information to collect to get more fined, refined uh, estimates and, and and things to worry about and not worry about. I, I want to keep moving with the chronology of, of the, like the story of the ocelot, but if at some point there's a way to weave this in, I'd like to understand this. We will often say that um, if a female – of whatever species, let's say we're talking about ocelots. Like if she can successfully produce two, if she can have two offspring that make it to breeding age, 
she was successful and you would hold the population. Like the population remains static. Is that like an acceptable thing to say to somebody? Well, what is it? The humans? You have to have at least 2.3 humans to maintain. Oh, is that what, okay. I, I, well, I learned that 20 years ago. Maybe I'm, I think I'm I think about, silly by now. But. but I think about that with salmon and stuff, right? Is They're oh, yeah, dropping, yeah. I don't know, thousands of eggs. And it'd be like if two of those eggs makes it, the fish was successful. Yeah, yeah. Two of the eggs out of – or with sturgeon, they're putting in – producing in a lifetime millions of eggs. If yeah. two of those make it, that's a successful fish. Yeah. And, and there are, you know, there, there are strategies to just produce eggs and there's no parental care. And then you have the reverse where elephants may put in years for, for making sure their young survive to, to breeding age. So and you have everything in between. But yeah, I 2.3 humans, I guess, to replace and, and uh, that, that, Seems logical, I guess. Can you real quick explain those strategies where you have there's like they have letters applied to them, right? Like the rabbit strategy or whatever. Oh, K K selected species and R selected species. Yeah, is that what? You, yeah, that's right. We're meaning like you have a ton of them and don't pay any attention to them. Yeah, that's R select R selected species. Where and help me know if, if I'm wrong. K selected species is where they invest a lot of energy and, and time. In raising the young and making sure they they reach breeding age. Yeah, like a black bear, right? She's gonna yeah. spend she's gonna spend two years tutoring her offspring, caring for and tutoring her offspring. Yeah, yeah. And a rabbit's like, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to live. <laughs> you, you get get out of here. Yeah. Just, no, I know a lot of prey are like that. You know, the the rodents and everything else. Um. What was it that you actually wanted the ocelot for when you went out to catch one? When you said, I'm going to study ocelots, people were like, yeah, hey, there's probably not a need to study or whatever. But like, what, what really were you wanting one for? We, we had everything you could list that, at the time. We, we wanted to learn about its, its air, home range size, uh, how many there were, um, what kind of social organization did they have, what are their activities, just the basic natural history. Like enough to fill out an Audubon guidebook. Yeah, and we probably did. <laughs> we probably did at the time. We, we That was the very first ocelot study, and then another one started in Venezuela a few months later, but nothing was known at that time about ocelots. It was the first ocelot study. Yeah, yeah. When you learned from the when – you, when you had to go ask around about how to go get one, uh, lay out like what kind of sets you were making and how you were catching them. Because it's kind of weird. It's like a thing I haven't seen – a strategy that I don't know why it's not more widely used. Well, we, we've like used box live traps. birds. Yeah, we use box. Tra- well, and they stay alive. By the way, I just want to make that point. We we use box traps. Yeah, I mean, okay, to, sure, tomahawk box traps. But imagine the night that they, they, <laughs> imagine the night that pigeon spends separated by some quarter inch mesh from an ocelot. <laughs> we started off with chickens for the first twenty or thirty years, and it's amazing. It, it's not what you would think. I would walk up in the morning to check traps, and the ocelot would be sound asleep, and the chicken was trying to pick fleas off the ears of the ocelot. Are you More serious? Than, multiple times. I, that happened several times. They they attained re- a relationship during the night. So it doesn't, like, destroy the chicken's psyche. Not, well, it's hard to tell a chicken's psyche, but I couldn't I – I didn't detect that. No, yeah, wow. I'm, not, I'm not condemning it. I mean, it's like – plus – you have every justification when you're trying to like find out what's going on with something that's going to be like wiped off the face of the earth if it gives a chicken a yeah a but, little bit of a heart yeah, a little like heartburn for a night. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, Ted was my favorite rooster, and uh, and and he did. He he lost one eye in a battle with a raccoon and things. But this was in nineteen eighty two, eighty three. But he he persisted, and and he caught several ocelots, big white rooster. I would place the roosters a certain distance apart, so in the early morning they'd be crowing to each other. Oh. And then it's like a natural predator to call. Those, I'm sure, it helped ocelots. That's a great hard. idea. Yeah. Hey, you know when you take uh, some time to clean out, uh, let's say, like clean out your garage, and you're like, man, how was I living like that with that place such a mess? Well, check this out. If you've been paying a fortune for wireless and then you switch over to Mint Mobile and get plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you'll be saying, how was I ever affording to do that way I did it before? It's time to switch, okay, to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and get your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater, and you will cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. Again, mintmobile.com slash meat eater. It's a $45 upfront payment required, which is the equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free 
and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Describe the trap now, the the tra- and like it's kind of like where you go to set it and how you figured out where to go but set it. Can we? Fi- I want to know why we don't use chickens anymore. Uh, it's pigeons now. Well, they crap too much and eat too much food. It's a oh. basic reason. No. There's, there's a, and pigeons. It's cheaper. Or they do less of both. They less defecation problem, less and less uh, food, and uh, and they're very happy. And the birds, we take very good. I mean the. You wouldn't believe the care we take care of the, the pigeons in the aviary. They're treated treated very well, and uh, so but it's very effective. And so I so I use white pigeons to to try to increase the light during the the night, and and we'll catch as many bobcats and ocelots. Uh, uh, typically, a hundred trap nights, hundred fifty trap nights to catch one ocelot or one bobcat. That's ten traps out for fifteen nights to get a hundred fifty trap nights. Well, one trap for one night is a one trap night. Yeah, I'm tracking. So you. they're pretty easy. But jaguarundis in Mexico is over a thousand trap nights to catch one jaguarundi. They're very, very difficult to catch, and that's why no one's published on them, I guess, so far. All right, explain the set, like the set for an ocelot, and I want to get back into the bait thing too. Okay. Well, first you find out where there's a local roadkill if you can. So there's probably a population nearby. Then you look for the densest brush near that roadkill. And Just if, one roadkill, pretty much. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're not all, but it, it probably eighty percent of them will reflect where population is. Yeah, it's a really pretty effective. And, and well, and but turn, ne- you you can't be telling me that every time you drive down the Southern Texas Highway and you see a roadkill that there's a, a population of ocelots nearby. Well, there've been very few locations of roadkills. They've only been near the two populations oh, with the exception of an ocelot. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, no, no, I was... Oh, I got you. You thought he meant any old roadkill. Yeah, I'm thinking, oh, there's a dead <laughs> nil guy. Let's set up an ocelot trap. <laughs> oh, no, 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 so you find a, a, the recent ocelot yes. roadkill dead and then go from there. Yeah. But there were... Okay, sense. but in 82, there weren't any dead ocelots there, there, on the road. There, there weren't, and I understand now. Um, the refuge only had seven fourteen, and and no one had reported a recent ocelot roadkill there. The other larger population, eighty percent of the ocelots occur on on five to seven ranches, large ranches, and you were probably on one of them, the Hacienda Eteria Ranch, yep. just recently. We believe there's probably some nearby there, uh, but these are large ranches away from the two roads that are there. There are only two highways. And so the, so the big population's away from roads. That that explains part of it. So when you went out to make the to catch one, you just went to the last place like like how you know what I mean? How did you decide like well here's a place to try? Well, I had a, it was a the couple, last place known couple, to have seen one or something. A couple of old trappers told me where they trapped them in the past. Oh, okay. And uh and sure enough they've it's really the same place they've been trapping them since 1940s and 50s. And then they're still there. Uh, in, in those few places. Okay, and talk about the set now. Uh, the box trap. Uh, so we find the densest brush and the and the largest patch of that densest brush that we can. Thorn shrub is their habitat. There'll be 35 different species of thorny shrub species there. It's an amazingly, beautifully complex shrub community. Any place we can find a trail in that that we can get to easily or where a trail intersects another trail. You have it increases your odds. 
Uh, so, we, so we'd look for that. And, and um, so history of cats, good habitat, and then looking for trail sites, a place to trout. And then, uh, and then pretty good chance you'll catch a cat if there's one there in a short period of time. Uh, you know, we didn't talk about that. I meant to ask you about what, um, what were the hell people doing with them when they were trapping? Uh, on like the, one, like in the, whatever, in the forties, fifties, sixties, when they were getting knocked. You oh know, yeah. Yeah. The, were they, were they, were they selling them as in the fur markets? Yeah. Yeah. It's, they were, I, I, there's a, a record I just sent Neil, um, from the 1940s of these two ocelots that were trapped in, in uh, Star County, which is right adjacent to Rio Grande. And he's, he he sold them for $2.50 per pelt. So they would sell them in, in the old days. And like a lot of the pelts, they they sell them. So you could go down and get like yourself like an ocelot jacket or something back then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you go back for enough in time, there, there was a it was very popular trading uh, um uh, thing on the frontier. People didn't have cash. They didn't couldn't spend money. So if you wanted to to get some milk or some eggs, you 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 trade something. And often a pelt, an ocelot pelt, was very valuable in trading. And the Comanches would use them for saddles. Uh, they would just throw an ocelot pelt on the horse and then ride on that. It's kind of a riding style, there, yeah, man. right. Yeah, yeah. And then the quivers for the arrows would be ocelot quivers. Uh, ocelot pelts would be. It's really interesting how. It was important in the frontier. Hmm. Just because they were so cool looking. Yeah. Probably. Exactly. Yeah. So you, when you caught the first one, you, what'd you catch down? A, a chicken or a pigeon? The, the very first one of all the cats we've caught, 250, we technically caught it on a padded leg hold trap, a two and a half oh, padded. Oh, you did? Leg, that was yeah. pre-live trap. Before yes. you were using live traps. Yeah. And we in our federal permit, we, we had in there... The fact that we could use Laco traps, box traps, or even hounds. Okay. And uh, and um, John, my my buddy who's, who's out of Maine, helped me catch that first ocelot on the on the Guadalupe Ranch, and and he he was uh, uh, working on uh, so he had the padded leg holds, and so so that all the other cats since then since nine, that very first cat have been with box traps. So five days later, we caught another. I caught another ocelot with a box trap. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's, and, and the chicken thing has worked around the world. Again, we've, we've trapped 12 different species of cats all on chickens. So it's kind of amazing how well, you got a universal. box trap and in the back of the, where you put the bait, there's a separate little cage. Exactly. And the bird hangs out in there. And they're protected and, and they're food and water, all they want to eat. But cats like chickens. And he comes in there and triggers a thing and uh, kicks the treadle or whatever and the door shuts. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we used to put lures sometimes, or we'd hang some flagging, you hang a feather so it blows in the wind, or yep. some fur. We we found we don't even need to use lure if you just have the bird there. That works as good as anything. No, find that thing. Yeah, yeah. No yeah. lure. Well, the, yeah, I like that oh, yeah. crowing trick, putting them out so they crow back and forth. Yeah, you know? I, I yeah, it made me feel good. It made me think that I actually had it figured out and stuff. But uh, I don't know. I think it helped a little. How so? Go ahead, yeah. I was going to say your PhD PhD student in that video though was doing a little like covering the the floor of that trap, so they are sensitive a little bit to the to the metal. Well, I, I try to teach that to make sure to, to I, I I teach the perfect set mm. and then setting dirt along the metal and the treadle and and encase it in brush so there's only one entrance from the front, and I give them the perfect scenario, but. 
but I've put traps where they're even sitting almost in the air and sometimes and so I start off with the ideal trap, but you can, at least for ocelots, you can catch them other ways. Not a perfect trap set. Did it make the news when you caught one? Or was there like, was there media around the fact that um, you were started catching them? No, I, I always, for the first two years, I thought that it was, I, I, I would catch them and work them up all by myself. And, and I always thought this was a very, I felt like it should have more attention than it was getting. I was just there by myself and, and doing the cat research and. And uh, a couple of years later, there started to be some media things. Yeah, well, after a while, there was a ton of media things. Yeah, there there have been a variety of – there have been a lot of things over over the years. And then when you came into it, I would have thought that at that point, they get ESA protection in what, 82? 82 or? for the U.S., yeah. Why did that not lead to – why was that in, insufficient? To like, why were the numbers still going down? Like in '85, they're still going down. Well, they, the the numbers were probably very similar, but the genetic erosion of the same population we were monitoring the decline of heterozygosity or the, or the genetic variation. So that's why I was going down. The numbers were probably about the same. I think for the last since we started 38 years ago, the numbers have always been about the same, but they they increase in wet years and you have high prey. But when the droughts hit, you get a two three year drought. It, it it affects the this ocelot survival. We've documented that through our research, that um, you get a, a s- severe drought six months into it. The, the vegetation is really pretty much gone. The rodents and rabbits that decline from that vegetation, and then you see failure of ocelot reproduction about uh, about 12, 12, 18 months later, and that can only go for so long when you have so few cats. And and the ocelots disperse. A lot of the the sub the the subordinate or subdominant individuals will disperse, and we found that the home ranges of the residents will expand. So, and they the residents will survive because they've got it figured out. They know what the home range is. They know where to to hide, where to find food. Every night they they really intensively explore their home range, and they have an understanding of of real time understanding of where the prey is, where the dangers are where the coyotes' risk are and things. And so they know when the prey starts to decline, the, the residents probably push off the, the dispersers, and the dispersers are the ones that die. They have much lower survival. They die from road kills. Yeah, yeah. hit by cars. Yeah, that's the number one form of mortality now is road kills. What else? You were mentioning coyotes. Coyotes will kill them? We've never documented that. I'm, I'm sure uh, it, wouldn't be, it would happen uh, for kittens at mm-hmm. least. But the fact that they use really dense brush, most of the time coyotes won't go into that brush. But if a, a pack of coyotes uh, found one in the open, it, it probably would be a, a, a problem. But there's enough other things that will kill them. We've had, had them die from rattlesnake bites, uh, ingesting a, a, a grass burr into the lungs. Oh, yeah? Mange. Do you lose them too just from people being like, what the hell is that? And then shoot it? Um, Which seems to be a real thing. But, well, there it, it, it happened only once that I can think of in the late 1990s. So. You did it, Neil? No, not me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't identifying myself. I was just saying it happened once. There's oh, that was, a, that was a, not me. That was a yeah, one time. Exactly, yeah. That's how he got interested in the subject. <laughs> the story I heard was, was a, it was a hunter out of Houston shot one with a, a bow and arrow. Yeah. Because he, uh, he, he thought it was a bobcat. Oh, okay. And, and about Long. one out of ten bobcats is spots just like an ocelot. So 
So it's really hard to distinguish. Well, but you got the whole tail problem. Yeah, you know, and a bobcat has sometimes surprisingly long tails, six inches, you know. Mm-hmm. So so someone who's not out there hunting all the time can yeah, fall into that. Yeah. That happens all the time, even with people that know what they're looking at. I was a young biologist. And I was It was about 1984, 1985, and I was working on a piece of ground and called Mike Tuis out in 1985 and told him that he, that, that a buddy of mine and myself had seen an ocelot. And it was close by in Jim Wells County, and sure enough, an ocelot population hadn't been found there since. So it was bobcat. We, yeah, it was a bobcat. Yeah. We gotcha. didn't know what we were talking about. Uh. What if someone were to say, if the population just doesn't seem to have changed since 1982, that maybe, in fact, they're not endangered. Maybe there just aren't that many of them. Never were and aren't. Well, we're just like, how do about- you handle like how do how do you handle that question? Yeah, well, it's a good question. It's uh, there are definitely many more in the range of Mexico, Central and South America. There are thousands there. Where, so it's we're really talking about the U.S. population, which is fewer than a hundred, and um, and uh, so it it and and I'll, probably the hardest question to answer is why should we care? Why should we spend a lot of money? For uh, I, I don't struggle with that one, but go on. Okay, so some people do, and yeah. and, and 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 I just um, uh, for me it's just that the people that are involved with ocelot conservation have already gone past that question. Regardless of what kind of argument you want to use, they're determined they want to keep them for whatever reason, and uh, and there are a variety of reasons. Uh, well, but, I, I want you to get into that. I mean, sell me on wanting to keep them. I mean, I'm on board because I don't like I don't like us playing God and deciding that we're going to eliminate species from the planet. But uh, sell me on that idea. But but what about I mean, but, but also like talk about the one I'm talking about where how if if since the moment the first time someone ever studied them. They found like, okay, it looks basically like this. And then that's, that remains static for 30, 40 years. Um, how do you demonstrate that there's a problem? Because there's no baseline, there's no real baseline idea. Yeah. Right? Like, if you were going in in 82 to do like baseline data gathering, and not like what are things supposed to look like, but what do they look like? And it looked like that, and it still looks like that. How do you convince people that we're facing a problem? Well, I, I think that just the fact when that one, the, what we call the refuge population, only has 7 to 14 individuals, if you're lucky, you have half of that as females, 7. And there's a thing called demographic stochasticity. Sooner or later, you're going to have, you're going to have 14 males and no females. Just by chance, over time, that's what happened with the seaside dusky sparrow. Came down to six individuals; they all turned out to be males, and that was the extinction. Oh, you kidding? There's some there's some real practical practical reasons why we should think that they were more widely spread. Right now, if you were to look on the coast and the center of the population for ocelots, we had Hurricane Hannah come through. What was it? Maybe five, six weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer. Hurricane Hannah. It was Category One hurricane. The eye of that hurricane came right over top dead center, the center of the universe for ocelots in Texas. If, in fact, that would have been, say, a Category 4 hurricane like Hurricane Laura that hit the southwest coast of Louisiana, 
we probably would have lost that population of ocelots. So if you've got, I got what you've got them geographically confined in an area right there, and they all exist, you know, eighty percent of them got to be below twenty foot in elevation, and you get a storm surge, you get the, you know, you get everything that comes along with a major hurricane. There's no way that they will last and will last for very much longer just with that one particular source of, you know, potential catastrophe to them. Yeah, no, I got you. That, that's an interesting point. And also that idea that if you have like carrying capacity for such a small number, I never thought about the fact that you could wind up in a situation where they're all the same gender. Yeah, that's the demographic stochasticity. You got yeah. the environmental stochasticity. You get a five-year or 10-year drought, that might do it. And Every hundred years, we get we get a five or ten year drought, and we've got habitat elsewhere, not not right next to it, but habitat elsewhere that's perfectly good ocelot habitat, not occupied. What what is what is not what is like not worked? Why has the ESA protection not been? I, mean, I guess if you look at ESA protection as being keep it from going extinct, we're here to keep it from going extinct. Um, that, I mean, that's not what it is, but if you look at that being success, you could argue like, okay, it was successful because they're not extinct. But if you look at ESA protection as being a vehicle that would lead to recovery and it's not a one-way road and the expectation would be, you know, I think it only happens 2% of the time. Um, I'm not saying that's the fault of the ESA, but it has a very low success rate in terms of something going on the ESA list uh, and getting off. Is two percent of things. I think a variety of things happens. It, it goes on, and then they realize that it shouldn't have gone on because they find other populations. It goes on, and it's already gone. Um, or it goes on and becomes gone. Yeah. I, so not many things make it off. But what, like, what is preventing since 1982 to now? What has made it that now we're not like the same way we are about bald eagles? Where you almost get sick of looking at bald eagles. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Texas, it's 97% private land, probably unlike any other state. um, uh, Texas retained its private lands. So any management conservation wildlife is dependent on private landowners. And um, and, and Neil can probably address this as as good as anyone. Uh, The disincentives that are built into the Endangered Species Act and the fear that many landowners have that they'll lose their ability to manage the, the lands they wanted in the way that they want to uh, gives them no incentive to even identify that they have an endangered species on the property. In their view, for many of them, it's a disincentive. Neil, you, you think? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at ocelots, for example, 100 ocelots, probably greater than 70% of those ocelots are on private lands in okay. Texas. And these are large ranches. Um, there's against the tide uh, desire by those private landowners to somehow conserve ocelots for reasons of their own. Some of those are stewardship reasons that it would be a shame given that treasure that exists on those lands to let that species go extinct. Now, if you look over at the Endangered Species Act, and let's say it's a ream of paper, you know, they just print the whole act out and everything that has to do with it, about a ream of paper. About two sheets of those papers say something about private lands. And basically it says, thou shalt not kill an endangered species intentionally, absolute, except for some cases and some nuanced exceptions with wolves and other things. And, and thou shalt not 
take an endangered species incidental to any other land use practice. That's it. Hold on, say that last part again. No, shalt not take an endangered species as an ins- as it being incidental to an otherwise legal land use practice. So, Give me an example of that. An example of that, and the example of an ocelot is if you've got a fence line that runs through ocelot habitat, and you were to disturb the habitat by clearing out that fence line, that might be considered by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to be an action that alters the behavior or the breeding probabilities of ocelots, and therefore it's a prohibited act under the I act. I follow you. I thought it meant that it would lead to like the direct death of, not that it could lead to... That's, that's what it originally was meant for in the act but itself. But it's, it's interpreted now as deteriorating sure. habitat type or whatever. Or sure. affecting the behavior. Take, take just affecting the behavior. Sure, yeah. And, of course, that you know we came up with that in, what, 1972, right? And so we're driving a 1972 Ford Galaxy 500 policy trying to work with 2020 uh, conditions, trying to work with things like groups of landowners that are trying to work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to figure out how to recover an endangered species. And the Fish and Wildlife Service, sometimes through no fault of their own, can't figure out how to get out of the way and and to let it happen. Okay. And, you know, it's been called at least once vigilante conservation. You know, when that was first laid out there that way, I thought, well, that's kind of a pejorative term. But then when you really think about it, uh, vigilante is a group of citizens that have taken up a cause because the officials that are supposed to be doing it have abandoned the cause. And so – What would be an example of vigil- vigilante conservationism? Uh, vigilante conservation would be a, a, group of, a group of landowners, for example. In, in this particular situation, we have landowners that know they have ocelots that would like to do – Three or four things. One is to survey for those ocelots to know where they are, where Mm -hmm. they are, and how many of them there are. Well, if you do that, then there's some confidentiality standards that those landowners would like. They'd like for that information not to be leaked to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service simply because the Fish and Wildlife Service would then have to make that available to a lot of these organizations that would file lawsuits and force the Fish and Wildlife Service to do the two things that landowners like, don't like to hear, and that's enforce and have the authority over. And So if they don't, okay, if you want, like a, a rancher wants to know or a landowner wants to know, do I have them? I think they're, they're like, maybe they're like, I think they're totally cool. I wish I had more. Yeah. I'd like to know if I have one, but I don't want the feds to know. Who are they trusting to sort of like keep track? That's the that's the problem, and part of the problem is you're you're inclined to not allow people like Mike Tuis to put his graduate students and researchers on the ground to survey for ocelots because it's going to lead to trouble. Yeah, you know we think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 ocelots in Texas. There could be more. It's it's an unknown, so that's an extrapolation, right? We don't know how many there are. We don't know exactly where they are. We've got some known populations. One known population is on the East Foundation's El Sal's Ranch. So we've got the the largest population known. 
And we're not afraid of the Endangered Species Act or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, perhaps foolishly, but nevertheless, we're not afraid. We're, you know, we're going to continue to to work the research management recovery system, and we feel like it's a stewardship responsibility, as do other ranchers, to recover that species. There's, for, for whatever reason, and, and, and it can be a religious reason, it can be a reason that, look, we don't want this to go out on my watch, whatever that is, but, also, but you gotta take into account in that, at least in that part of the state, in a state that has 142 million acres of private lands, those private landowners are by and large the best conservationists there are. I mean, they care about that land. They care, they've got a stake in it, and they've got a stake in the future reputation for themselves as ranchers and caretakers of that, of that ground. That's the scenario we're finding with ocelots is we just simply – are trying to figure out how to get rid of the disincentives and be able to assure private landowners in and around that ocelot population that they can allow monitoring, research, and then proactive measures for, say, translocation. Uh, we're doing things like collecting semen from male ocelots so that we can perhaps impregnate zoo ocelots and have offspring that we might be able to either from a wild population or from or from that crossbred zoo population create another translocated population elsewhere so that we don't have to worry about that next hurricane that comes through turning into a category 4 yeah i mean the clock is ticking on that type of catastrophe when you get a population confined to that small of a geographic area and they're that small and if you had to, if you had to characterize the, um, if you had to characterize the sort of anti-Fed sentiment around, let's say someone is, they know their family knows they have ocelots on their property, um, they don't want to be rolled up into any kind of activities with the scientific community at a federal level for fear that someone's going to come in and go like, oh my gosh, you do have ocelots, I'm shutting this place down. Because you're not going to be allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Um, maybe you're not going to be able to do the very things that uh, made it that it was good ocelot habitat anyways, like right. sort of having economic viability on your property, which makes it that you don't need it to, to, to develop it, for instance. Exactly. But do you find that like the average sentiment that's like the anti-Fed sentiment is educated and precise, meaning they're like, oh, I would love to tell them. But if I tell them, then this could happen to me and it would look like this. Or is it just generally, I hate the feds? I think it's across the board, obviously, because, I mean, you got, I mean, in our, our state, we've got 350,000 decision makers, 350,000 landowners. So it's going to be across the board there. So, and, and there's experiences that they've seen with other species. So you take something like the golden cheek warbler that may have been used in some cases to halt development mm -hmm. in and around the Austin area. You take something like the dunes sagebrush lizard that in some cases was used to halt oil and gas development in the Permian Basin. Like was used opportunistically. Sure. Yeah. 
was used sure. out, like someone wanted a thing to happen and that was the way to make it or something wanted something to not happen and that bird or that lizard was a way to make it not happen yeah. that gave you legal we, legal it gave you legal grounds to get your way yeah we've got the flip side of the coin with ocelot real interestingly there's there's organizations that use it as a mascot for fundraising that that then don't do much for the ocelot mm. um we've got uh i think it's a this is a good thing our texas department of transportation uh, you can get an ocelot license plate Okay. There's more ocelot license plates in Texas than there are ocelots in Texas. And you can see, you, in fact, you can see more driving between San Antonio and Austin. You can see more ocelot license plates than there are ocelots in deep South Texas. So people love them. Yep. You'll see ranchers with ocelot license plates. So you know ranchers love them. They want to figure out how to recover ocelots without putting large ownerships that are depend on economic viability at at stake and so they need assurances and so and i think it's i think it boils down to you know just raw trust and economics and it's not just the and, and it's not that there's bad people at the u.s fish and wildlife service there's good people um they're they're caught managing an act that in some cases is antiquated and there's sophisticated organizations that have figured out how to sue them and they know in every conversation you'll have with the Fish and Wildlife Service over anything, it'll all come down to, you know, okay, what happens when, you know, group X, group Y or group Z uh, sues us because we've worked out a deal with you as a private landowner. So, okay, here's how we're going to, here's how we're going to make sure that we're, uh, fully solid on our conservation measures. Uh, We're legal on maintaining confidentiality, all of these hoops that you've got to jump through. And for some landowners, they just look, I'm suspicious when I have to apply for permits, when you're telling me you have enforcement authority over me and those types of things. So I think in the spirit of uh, antiquated and sophisticated, uh, we should probably uh, take a, a uh, quick crack at uh, defining uh, vigilante again. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I think that was, uh, if I may, a slightly uh, romanticized Texan definition of vigilante. Okay, uh, where uh, oftentimes, and especially if we look back through history at our vigilante groups. Uh, some would characterize the Texas Rangers as one of them, that they aren't just folks stepping in and taking care of things that aren't getting done. Uh, like it's implied that it's like justice being done, but oftentimes that's um, some self-serving justice as well, right? So Yeah, if you top it with the word conservation, then you're sort of qualifying it from vigilante uh, assholeism. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> that's a fair. That's a fair comment. Because if I, I said mean, vigilante I'm... charity, right? Vigilante charity, you'd be like, I don't know what it is, but it sounds like a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like somebody throwing money out the window. That's great. So I was letting it ride because it's vigilante <laughs> conservation, not vigilante uh, take, take destruction. A push, take a push at it because I use that one all the time. So mm. I'd like. No, like, no I, I I think just uh, revisiting that point, 
uh, is all that was needed. So uh, the computer is spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, ESA reform, like Endangered Species Act reform, is one of those things I'm like, you hear it all the time, and I'm leery about it because I support it, but I probably don't support it in the way that other people support it. It's one of those things that's become to mean, it's become... It's like it's having to the word conservation. Like I could say, "Oh, I'm pro conservation." You know, like, different politicians say, "I'm pro conservation." You're like, "What exactly do you mean?" And you realize that they're talking about something that you're not talking about. And a lot of people that talk about Endangered Species Act reform, a, a significant amount are saying what I mean by that is, I would like the damn thing to go away. And a significant amount are saying. I mean that it could be more effective if we change it and make it more flexible to account for like what you're talking about um, in the situation of the ocelot. So for me to now say, if someone asks like, do you support endangered species act reform? I'd have to say, um, I'll have to ask you a series of questions before I answer. Cause I don't know what you're getting at. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you. I'm uh, when I say that, and, and, I, and I don't say reform often. I just say changes to the Endangered Species Act or how it's administered, and I don't care which. Uh, I'm looking for better performance on private lands. Mm-hmm. And wh- why that? What's the, what's the big deal there? When you look at more than one-third of endangered species that are currently listed entirely depend on private lands. And somewhere in, in the neighborhood of 75% have a large portion of their range across private lands. So if we've got an Endangered Species Act that's not performing as well as it could perform on private lands, then maybe it needs some reform. But I get it about being worried about cracking the act open. You know, if we're driving that 1972 Galaxy 500, you know, we crack it open. We want to reupholster the seats and put a new, more efficient engine in it so it's not getting three miles to the gallon. Somebody else might want to put some whole bunch of other stuff in there Yeah, that, you know, and oftentimes you'll hear people just lay out, you know, the, the one liner, well, the act needs more teeth. Well, that's one of those things that means a different thing to different people. You know, oftentimes when someone says that they basically mean we want the fish and wildlife service to be more like policemen and enforcement officers rather than, doing whatever it takes by any means possible to result in the recovery of endangered species across all lands, whether it's public lands or private lands. I think it would be phenomenal if we could find ways to better, if we could find ways to better work with private landowners on ESA issues in a way that still allowed the ultimate goal to move forward. But I do think that The way we do it now and the way that we handle private interests leads to a thing where it's kind of like the spotted owl syndrome, where a spotted owl, after the whole debacle with logging and spotted owl, a spotted owl didn't mean, that word didn't mean a bird anymore. Like when you hear the word spotted owl, you don't think like, oh, it's a a little owl that lives in old growth forest. You think like spotted owl is federal overreach. Right. Because there are things that we do that really there are things that we do in the service of prolonging or saving species 
that makes them have like this entirely negative connotation in people's heads who have to suffer with it most. And I think in, in around here in this neck of the woods, the most egregious examples are what's been done to people around ESA listing for wolves and ESA listings for grizzlies, which they've been recovered by definition for decades, yet you continue to make it hard on private landowners to go about their business because we like sure move the move the goalposts. Move goal the needle. Yeah. Move the goalposts all along. And then that creates this sort of like this anti wolf sentiment, this anti grizzly sentiment that I don't think it's necessary to create the anti-wolf, anti-grizzly sentiment. Like, I don't think that you have to make that in order to save those things. There has to be a way to, re- like, reduce the friction and still hit the ultimate outcome, and it would probably come around from some form of reform. Sure. And and I know what you're talking about. I was a, I was a wildlife biologist for a timber company in the Pacific Northwest in the early 1990s, and so... I was hated from both sides, right? Because I was inside the timber company, so I was hated by our loggers. But then you were a biologist. Yeah, I was a biologist, so I was hated by the you know the others. But learn learn to learn to work. Put habitat conservation plans together so that we could live with the spotted owl. There were huge financial reasons to do that, and so there in the in the Pacific Northwest around spotted owls, marble murrelets, Pacific salmon. There's huge financial interests at being able to put together some type of collaborative deal, a habitat conservation plan that worked for private lands and worked for endangered species. We don't necessarily have that with all species in all places. You know, when you've got a small salamander that shuts down uh, uh, what you think is a housing development that ought ought to go forward, you're likely to just shake your fist if you're the housing developer at that salamander, figure out how you can hide the fact that it's there. You know, we don't want it on our property. It, be, it, it in and of itself becomes the enemy, right? We've got to figure out how to remove the disincentives. And this, and this is the canned comment, right? Remove the disincentives and create incentives. And that's easy to say. It's hard to do. It's a really hard thing to do to create those out-of-the-box incentives that always work with private landowners, but it is doable. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada, different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more. 
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. What's the thing that landowners are primarily worried about if people know they have ocelots? Is it that they're worried about being able to drill? Like oil extraction? Like what's the thing that they're mostly worried about losing? They're mostly worried about losing their ability to make spot decisions on land use. So, for example, uh, the fence line situation I was telling you about. I've, you know, I've, I've been worried on our own lands about road clearing and – uh, habitat that we might lose when we need to come in and clear an area so that we can increase increase the the forage production capacity for the land. Those types of decisions, but ranchers cre- creating need to pasture be able to for cattle, or, exactly, yeah. exactly. We need to make sure that you, you know we're not we're in a situation where we've got on staff scientists, biologists, and managers that know and understand that, so we can craft a solution. We've got our friend right next door with Mike Tuis, who's the, you know, preeminent ocelot ecologist. But not every landowner feels that comfortable. Mm-hmm. And they tend, if you're a large ranch, you might have a family that you're responsible to and a board of directors that you're responsible to. 
and you've got a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that you don't lose your ability to manage that land. You don't lose your ability to graze a 10,000-acre pasture, let's say. Uh, we've got to figure out how to make sure that people don't lose that, they gain the incentive or, or remove the disincentive for at least raising their hand and saying, you know, I've got ocelots, here they are, working with you know, Caesar Clayberg group over here. But the first way to do that is to make sure that there's some confidentiality. So as they're stepping into the game, so to speak, they're, they can do it with some safety. They can do it with a... Is it le- I guess it's got to be. Is it legal for someone to know that they have something, right? Okay, let's say there's an endangered species, right? Yeah. And you got a ranch, and you know it's on there. It's not like illegal for you to keep that secret. Nothing wrong with keeping it secret and managing for it and increasing their numbers. But are, are, how many of these ranchers, all right, how many of these ranchers are actually, let's say you know they're there. Yeah. I, I just want to poke at the motives here. You know they're there. You enjoy them being there. If you could shake a magic wand and have there be more, you would do it and there'd be more. Right. You don't want to have anybody come in and tell you you can't do X, Y, and Z to keep your place solvent and viable, to keep your property like you know in your family, right. functioning, cattle ranch, whatever you got. Um, what are they actually like? What are they doing in exchange? Like, what are they proposing that they would do to help ocelots if they could somehow let the cat out of the bag? That was a good pun. Yeah, that was good. Like, what are they gonna? What would they do to make more of them? Or like, what would they do to contribute rather than just that they're just looking for a way to not be interfered with? Right. Like, what gift are they giving to the people, or what gift are they giving to the cat? So I'm going to pitch some of that to to Mike, but just to just to comment straight out, they can be an example to other landowners where we might translocate a population so that those landowners would agree. Oh, I hadn't thought about the translocation. You thing. know, we've got to have another population. And if I'm those, no, no, those no, landowners look over there and go, it. you know what? Look what's happening to those guys. Like hell, am I going to let you let the cat loose here? I got you. So that's the ask. That is one. There are some things that you can do. And through. ask would be, man, your place is has none, could have some. Why don't you get on board? He's like, hell with that. The minute they let them go here, I'm screwed. Right. And yeah, plus, plus, we it. need to know from those landowners, just, I mean, there's some real conservation benefit just knowing exactly how many ocelots there are, where they are. Uh, there's, some, there's some long-term habitat development that can, be, that can be done. And ranchers know better than anybody how to develop habitat. And so that, uh, I don't know, Mike, any? Yeah, yeah. Frankie Terrier, uh, he... He uh, established uh, the, one of the first conservation easements in, in 1987-88 where he set aside two different tracks. Each of them was only about 200 acres each of the, the best ocelot habitat that is left in Texas and created a, 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 a conservation easement with Fish and Wildlife Service. We've had 11 different territorial ocelots at the same time on these very small core habitats. And we consider that to be a, a, a source population, a source habitat, which I I really believe that, that kind of serves like the heartbeat for that population in the ranch country. We've had several instances 
I think uh, at least eight different ocelots that moved from those very small patches onto to, uh, the East Ranch uh, there. So it's a very source. So so that and and over the years he added two more conservation easements with the Nature Conservancy in 2007 and 2009, and just about four or five years ago put the the remaining 10,000 acres into some kind of an an agreement, uh, mostly rangeland, but some kind of agreement to protect the ocelot into the future. So over time, although it's mostly grass and very little habitat in the rest of that ranch, it will eventually provide for ocelots. And that little pocket of habitat. Well, well yeah. and that rest of the 10,000 acres, that's rangeland. When that starts to, to grow back, we have more, oh, I see. more carbon in the atmosphere, and that's great for brush. You know, ultimately, the, the carbon in the, the atmosphere will help the brush. Hold on, explain that. Well, uh, Neil, Neil, you're more of a range. range. Oh, you threw that one out there. Now we're now we're going to rabbit trail. <laughs> oh, on no, this. Yeah, I won't make you do it for long. But uh, you mean like carbon in the atmosphere decreases grassland and increases brush, increases the opportunity for brush uh, for brush growth. Yeah. So it leads to grassland loss. Right. Huh. Right. So and, as, and what capacity? Because the pre- precipitation changes, or no? It's actually the change. Now I'm not an expert on this. The biochemical changes that that result in the better competitive ability for woody species versus grass to actually capture the resources on a site. The, no kidding. Yeah. Water. So when you hear about like juniper nutrients. encroachment and stuff, that could there, there's some factor there that could be linked to like more carbon or less carbon in the atmosphere that could lead to juniper encroachment on Yeah, Neil, did you sure. throw out that carbon thing? You shouldn't have thrown that carbon. That was no, we don't, we, don't, we don't need to hang on it. I just really, <laughs> I never heard that, man. That's interesting. I'm going to slip one in. What's still, I'm, I'm confused at why, what's preventing, if we have these core populations and you know that they are breeding, right? And we're not trapping them and shooting them legally as much as we were 100 years ago. And so how come we just don't have like a, just a general increase in population and dispersal? Excellent question. Excellent question. The, a couple of things. One is, is the ocelot is a habitat specialist. It, it it seeks a finner, it seeks the densest brush that you could find. Ninety five percent horizontal cover is is ideal for that. Can you explain that uh, horizontal of the shrub layer? The shrub layer is fifteen feet or shorter. That's where the shrub layer occurs, and and also throughout the range, we use different vegetation communities. But a common factor is extremely dense cover near the ground where the ocelot operates. But what's the percentage mean? Oh, okay. if, if you if you did a measuring uh, line or a transect over over the brush, it's called line intercept. Ninety five percent or more of that would be solid brush. It'd be just a, a wall of brush, and so they're very selective on that. And and twice, once in the eighties and the nineties, we flew transects over the lower thirteen can, counties. Can you hold on? I'm, I'm so confused. Uh, okay, picture like a very nice lawn. Okay, uh huh. That would be zero percent. Well, no, no, that was the, sure. and picture you're an ant. Going okay. through a very thick lawn. Okay. Would that ant say this is 100% brush coverage uh, uh, as he finagles his way through uh, a thick grass? Well, it depends on your grass, I guess. You know, if you have a solid stand of grass, yeah. If it's spotty, maybe not. But, it, okay, so if you measured, that's what I'm saying, like if you measure 100 centimeters, so I take a, a, a thing that has 100 centimeters, and I, a, a stick, and I hold that stick up, 9.5 of those centimeter marks are going to have a piece of vegetation there, touching it. There are a few different ways to measure, but the one I have always liked was it's called line intercept. You you do a, a, a tape measure for say ten feet. Okay. And then you, you identify what's called the drip line of each shrub, individual shrub, 
where the the foliage canopy, and then you you consider that continuous. No, I got you. And so if, they, right. if you measured over that, then that that's what I got you. Because I was saying that's a thick ass brush of ninety five. Well, yeah, and and those, is what's interesting is those two small tracks that remain is what's left of the. They called it the El Hardin back in the early nineteen hundreds before the Rio Grande Valley was cleared. There was a lot of of the El Hardin, the garden Spanish. Just solid brush, and that was one of the last vestiges of of the core population of ocelots. What's kind of ironic is, prior to the the Spanish uh, explorations that occurred in the 1600s, there are a lot of accounts of South Texas being a grassland or primarily a grassland. So that probably wasn't really good ocelot habitat, except along the rivers where you had the, the really dense brush. Over time, uh, because of the, the stopping the fire. And overgrazing, you've had more encroachment of brush over time, and that's benefited the ocelots. So we've we've actually helped the ocelot in some places, in some ways. And there's yeah. some some places like the ocelot population on the Aturias. There's a there's a ranch there called the Punta del Monte, and that's just the point of brush, the the point of the woodland. That, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that that was so, the old Spanish name. So even as thick as we've seen it on the multiple South Texas ranches that we've gotten to hunt on, it's still not thick enough. Probably not, because a rancher, if he has to ride a horse through that, says it's thick, but it's a very special kind of thick. And we've done surveys, and we found that less than 1%, really less than one-half of 1% of South Texas has that very special cover type. Less than one-half of 1%. Wow. And that's why they're And rare. that's what presents— And that's—they mean they call it the brush country. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they should. Wow. It used to be like the wild a, horse like an asterisk. They need to have an asterisk <laughs> after it. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> the, the brushy— Kind of brushy country. Yeah. So, so, so that's what, been, that's what prevent, that that's, that's, that like answers his question. Like, why okay. are they not, if we're not just out shooting them willy-nilly and trapping them? Well, that's part of it. But they don't have anywhere to go. The important part is they're very poor dispersers because that spotting pattern that they have, they stick out like a sore thumb in the open. So they, they need that dense brush to move from one area to, to the other. Those two populations are separated by less than 30 miles. And over 35 years, we've never documented one ocelot moving to the other. That's it. That even that just that's one of the that questions I wanted to ask is what's the when you're throwing a collar on one of them, what's the farthest you've ever seen one of them go wearing a collar? Twenty six miles. Uh, and that went from the ranch population down to what we call the Port of Harlingen. Typically it's about ten miles and that usually ends unsuccessfully being killed on the road. And what happened to him? Well, well, the, he was killed on the road too. The, the longest one, the poor, he was killed. The, that's how we find him. They killed on the road. So this ideal of, of the disconnection or so connect, the, on the one you had that went the farthest, yeah, he's went farther the than they normally fall. Went farther than they normally make it, but succumbed to the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is they go into the highly developed Rio Grande Valley, and there's a tense road network there. So it's just a gauntlet. Once they leave the population, they're going through a gauntlet that often. Is demise, you know, on the road. Do they head, when you got a collar on one, do they head in a direction that makes sense? You know, I've always thought about that. The, the outside doesn't have a map. Yeah, yeah. He has no yeah, clue but we where don't, he's we going. Don't, we don't really understand the stuff, though, because, like, you look at, I don't know, all kinds of stuff, man, like humpback whales, bowhead whales, sea, the, these various sea turtle species that do insane stuff. My brother had a bunch of pigeons that were born in his yard. One day he drove the pigeons an hour and a half away and they beat him home. Yeah. Well, we they, use they homing pigeons. They never left his yard. We use homing pigeons. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Mean. that He, that he had it in his head. To head in the, well, those you, examples are different. I, I, a lot of those birds may use magnetic yeah. fields of the stars. Or Not cats. They, but my only, my only point being, yeah. there could be some thing 
we don't yet understand. That sure. when a cat boogies, he boogies in a way that at least kind of makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm always uh, – we by no means know everything. And I, and I always – as a scientist, you have to be open that you don't know everything. And But I, but I, I, I think about it a lot. And, and, and the ocelot's world is in the dark and it can only see two feet – Above the ground, and its its immediate world is surrounded by brush. It's in a very enclosed world, so when it it boogies somewhere, you know, it, it you kind of wonder what kind of cues it's 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 homing into. Some natural drainages, I think, maybe a, a, a rough factor, uh, and or maybe at a distance they can't see that far in the distance because of those factors. It's really un, and so they don't have a map, and they usually get in trouble. One more, I'm gonna ask the same question a different way. Okay. Do the ones that take off take off in the same direction, or is it willy-nilly? I think there may be some generality for that. And again, it probably is related to the drainages, whatever cues that they see. In the, I, don't, I don't If there's a big open grassland, most of them won't go that way. But if there's some cover, some level of cover, even if it's 50% brush or something else, they prefer that over agricultural field. Got you. So there may be some roughness, but it's... Uh, I think for for a lot of the cats, it's a, almost a random thing. I'll tell you why I ask. Uh, I had one time in my mom's storage shed. I had ten live snapping turtles in there. She left the door open, and um, they all went the right direction. And I later thought it has to be the, downhill. The, the yeah, it Was has it to be the pitch. Yeah, they yeah, went downhill. I, I would I would guess that you know for a turtle. I was like they had to have gotten the yard. Because I followed slope. a bunch up and down the beach. They were all going. It had to have been that they just following the contour. Sam, I'm like, why I, guess, would you, I guess that one. Yeah, like, why, <laughs> why would a snap turtle like, I need to get to the water. I'm not going to go uphill. Yeah. It, it, I bet there are some cues like that, that different taxons, you know, respond different ways. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like, anytime I've headed to the water, it's always been downhill. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's, if you're playing crashes in the mountains, you follow the creeks down. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, you, when we were laying out some, when you were working with Corinne to put down some, some things that we wanted to discuss, you had three motivations that drive ocelots. And then parenthetically, it says, and most small cats is, uh, sex, hunger, and fear. Yeah. Uh, I've learned that from my, my, my two outdoor cats that are pretty wild. And I, I just sit around and watch them. And, and you they, better watch out because Cal will hunt them down and kill them. Cal's on an anti-cat crusade. Not, well, he is. Yeah. Oh, Feral he, cats. Well, no, I, I preach him more than most of them. He's think. a soft man with a dog and okay. a hard man with a cat. Yeah. Well, I, I like dogs. <laughs> I like dogs more, Cal. I, I like dogs more than cats, but I, I, I keep a few around for behavioral observations. Any animal helps you out tremendously. There, There's so many cues that help. Hunters and it, it, well worth your time to have an animal in your life, and and being anti cat isn't entirely correct. I, I am shocked at uh, the duality of uh, people's morals when it comes to uh, domestic cat ownership. Oh, yeah, that you don't like the guy that hunts two pheasants a year, but meanwhile your cat uh, that 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 feral. And free wandering house cats kill more birds than there are Americans every year. Yes, yeah. Um, and I, I did on this subject. I, like, what what is the is there overlap between a domestic cat population and and is there a concern for 
uh, disease transmission, that tac- toxoplasmosis, oh. I believe is what it is. Yeah, good question. Yeah, there, there's right near the El South Ranch is a small community of 100 people called Port Mansfield, and there have been some studies that have shown feline leukemia or some disease. 100 that, people, 2,000 cats. Go ahead. Well, you, you, you probably, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and what I worry about them is the bobcats probably coming into town or the edge of town, which they frequently do, getting that disease to bobcat and then into the ocelot population only about four or five miles away. So, And, and that's one thing we worry about. Mange is another thing. Coyotes will get mange. Usually a different kind of mange. Uh, uh, cats will get notoedric mange and they get sarcoptic mange. But we, we worry about ca- house cats. But usually cats won't live too long. Coyotes will kill them. Uh, uh, great horned owls will kill them. I, in the wild, although surprisingly, some places you can find some house cats, but most of the time they won't live too long in the wild. How do they arrange themselves like when you have a little population, you have to imagine that they're structured somehow, right? I mean, they're interacting with each other. You, you're talking about ocelots or house cats? House no, cats ocelots. Are, okay, yeah. Uh, ocelots, yeah. It's 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 kind of the typical system, social organization you see for the 33 species of small cats. Most people don't realize that. But I'm just amazed. There are 33 species of small cats, and many of them show the same system where, where the strategy of the female – is to breed and find a home range that's big enough that will support her young, raising her young over a, a year or two, even with variations of drought and wet periods. Uh, but the male's strategy is to try to, and she so the female wants to make sure her young survive to breeding age. And uh, the male's strategy is, is, is not does not take part of, of caretaking for the young, but it wants to breed with as many females as it can. So that male is monitoring the territory of one female, two females, or sometimes three. And that means it spends a lot of its time traveling and checking to find out when the female is in estrus or reproductively active. And if it wants to have, overlap two home ranges, two females, it's moving a lot. Getting hit by cars. Well, yeah, if, if there are roads in between, there, there will be. And, and the, But on the, the ranches where there aren't roads, they're, they're moving a lot. And... Um, and, and they train, so they're, so they're they're optimizing their ability to spread the genes that way. The female wants uh, she knows that the the, the males aren't going to help with with raising the young any. So it's really interesting strategy. And and uh, and the males, I think, for many small cats, will they'll monitor the females, and probably they'll fight with other males. And they definitely defend the territories. We've had three instances of one male killing another male. Hmm. All cats will kill other cats. Different species, same species, um, and the bigger cats kill the smaller cats pretty easy. Uh, but um, I, I've got a photo of this one ocelot in a jaguar in Mexico, and you can tell it's at a watering hole. And uh, they're they're the jaguar is about to kill that ocelot. So, so cats. Oh, really? And you caught him in a photo at that well, moment? Well, yeah, yeah, another person in Mexico. It's it's, it's one photo, uh, and they're both responding to the flash of the camera. But that ocelot, that first, there are two photos. In that first photo, the, the, all the hair standing out on the tail of that ocelot, and its one hind leg is already looks unusual, like it's already broken. I think they already had a bite oh, before that. Uh. And the, the three seconds later, the next camera, they're both looking back intensely at each other. And I bet if it had another three seconds, that ocelot would be dead. Yeah. So so uh, so that's a, a problem. But they they display a lot, and they they try not to fight. They they 
scent mark their home ranges and territories. They don't want to fight because if you break a canine or you lose one eye, your chances of surviving much longer is, is not good. If you had to uh, crystal ball it, right? How long have you been messing with ocelots for? 38 years. Okay, so what year will it be in 38 years? It'll be 2058? No, the no, hell? I'm a wildlife scientist. I didn't, yeah, I didn't, yeah, I didn't take yeah, math. You did the math right. Yeah. What, what, what year is it? Nailed it. 2058. 2058. 2058. 2058. Yeah. In 2058, uh, our ocelots is gone. In Texas, they're still around. You think so? Yes. Yeah. 2058. Yeah. Yes, I do. Because you have the East Foundation, who's going to work with some other landowners and do what it takes to maintain those into the future. I'm convinced. And hopefully well, get the, the translocation. All the, I ever do anymore things. is read about bad stuff, man. I'm, I'm glad to hear this. Well, you know, I, I probably changed my attitude five or 10 years. I spent the first 30 years pretty pessimistic and giving presentations that people come up at the end and say, I wish you weren't so pessimistic. <laughs> and be a little more no, are, you, are you just being but, strategic by being optimistic? No, I really believe that. Really, you're not yeah. just, you're not trying to play the long game a little bit with me. No, no, I really I really believe that. I, I think it's I'm a not. dumb and dumber approach. I mean, there's <laughs> there's there's a chance that ocelots are going to make it, and just like well, if we do the things we need to do, <laughs> and I think we will. Really, yeah. Tell people, uh, give people a little rundown of what they can do to find out more about ocelots and more about the work to save ocelots, but, you know, how people might be involved. Yeah. Well, one is check out our website, the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute, and then the East Foundation. I'm sure that you can get some information from both of those. Yeah. East, eastfoundation.net. Also, we've got a, a feature film coming out that you've seen produced mm-hmm. by, by uh, Ben Masters and Finn Fur and Feather. And Caesar Clayberg and, and East Foundation collaborated on that along with Fish and Wildlife Service. It's a 30-minute feature on the plight of ocelots in South Texas. Yeah. And that's part of a bigger uh, set of productions that, um, that Texan by Nature, a nonprofit that was formed by Laura Bush, is helping sponsor through Fin, Fur, and Feather Films. I mean, yeah, he did the – that's the dude that did Border the – Border and the Wall. Yeah, he did that, uh, and they did that wild horse film. Yeah, unbranded, yeah. unbranded, unbranded. Yeah. Ben Masters. In fact, he spends some time here in Bozeman every year. But uh, that is coming out, and that will be out in December. And uh, that's a that's a good, just basic synopsis of the issue from both a biological perspective. Well, you've seen it from yeah. both yeah. a biological perspective, and and it lays out the two sides of the issue in a, a little bit of an abbreviated form, but it does. Yeah, he got some incredible footage for that as well. And real quick, I want to mention Karen Hickson also was one of the founders of uh, funders of that, that film, but he got incredible five hours worth of film on the ocelots. A lot of it based on this one mother and her two young. And, and, and the, the two young are only seen together in the very first image. The male dies shortly thereafter. And, but from there on dies what I, I, Total guess, but I could see easily see a dozen things it's stumbling into. A, a big five-foot rattlesnake on that ranch. Okay. Could he easily do it? A coyote, stumble a bobcat. There's a variety of things that could do it. And, and, uh, um, but, and, and he, I think he has a, a, a like a, a one segment of, of, of also drinking water for six minutes. Uh, he has another of it regurgitating. It takes like two minutes for the sauce to regurgitate. 
Huh. It's a uh, fascinating film. <laughs> yeah, it's a little quirky, and and it's really good. It's an it's excellent piece, and and um, and and throughout that film, you see the mother training her young. It's constantly calling it, of uh, getting it to follow, and making small vocalizations. It's nursing it while coyotes are howling off in the distance. You know, it's almost like a calming effect on that on that kitten nursing and they're both sitting there calming and, and the calming behavior and it's leading it from one cover patch to another cover so the the sex hunger and fear i think are, are pure and i get that from my my backyard cats you know uh, uh, the males from the neighboring houses come in for the sex uh, they're constantly hunting the birds uh, and then the fear is if i just make a noise they're running for cover so, so you and and that's uh that's throughout the the cat king the small cats at least. We yeah. dropped something hopeful on you. So we've we've worked hard with the Fish and Wildlife Service over the last four or five years just to basically help them help them understand the rancher's side of the situation. And we have some uh, some strong and influential people within the Fish and Wildlife Service that have got it. They've got it figured out. And they're, they are working on the inside to try to figure out how we can do this separate and aside from any reforming the Endangered yep. Species Act or anything like that. It's just what can we do with what we have and how can we make this work? And we've got some really dedicated people in there that sh- sh- share the same objectives that, that we share, understand that we are serious about it. We sink more uh, funding into research on that species than anyone else, and we're there for the long run. And this is not just a flash in the pan. And at least for me, uh, I don't want that cat blinking out on my watch. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wish you best luck in that move because I think if someone's out there and and they would be willing to have some and willing to take some steps but don't want to get steamrolled, I'd sure hope that there's a – sure seems to me they'd, that we would – uh, collectively find a path forward for that individual, man. I mean, you know, and, and, and not have a, and not have a, a, a difficult to navigate bureaucratic, bureaucratic entanglement laid out in front of them. It's supposed to be part of how the North American model works too. I mean, it really does come back and apply to look, this is how we are supposed to handle our, our public trust yeah, that we've that we have in this country. It's supposed to work that way. We've got a lot of things working that way that are run through the state game and fish agencies. Of course, they have commissions where they can turn on a dime. Many of them do. Fish and Wildlife Service, the responsibilities that they have over endangered species, a little bit different. But we've got to make it work within that public trust doctrine of of the North American model. We got to figure it out. Kelly, got any uh, final wrap ups? Cal's going to go vigilante on them cats. Uh, uh, <laughs> wildlife management is hard. You know, I mean, it's, I'm sure there are a lot of folks trying to manage species on the public land side of the fence that are staring into the private land saying how easy it would be if only. And I think one of the, you know, I mean, as far as like land specifically managed for wildlife in the U S that is privately held, I think you're still a larger amount of land in privately held acres than all the national parks in the lower 48 combined. Um, you mean land owned one, for wildlife owned. 
yeah, with the stated purpose of, of yep. wildlife. Um, most of that, most of that's for hunting. Right. And, uh, you know, the thing that those pieces of land, uh, miss that are on the public land side of things in a lot of cases, not all cases is, um, the public has a voice like as, as a nation sometimes in how invested we're going to be in a species. And that kind of lacks on um the ocelot side of things right it's like oh that's a good you're going to be doing advocacy work on ocelots every every day yeah i know and you're like yeah and i'll and and with the public perspective is and i'll never see the damn thing because i can't go there yeah cal Cal made me think of something i think that's fundamental is that these vast ranches and even small ranches They'll generate often more income from their hunting operation of deer and quail than they do from the cattle operation. So they have incentives to hire a lot of our students, undergraduate and graduates, come and work on their ranches of biologists to keep the habitat there. And that fundamental incentive is also providing indirectly habitat for ocelots. So the, yeah. the hunting and, and, and uh, that, that, that's there is really indirectly also benefiting ocelots. Yeah, good quail habitat. And if you're a Renella type of fella, it's good cottontail habitat is good ocelot habitat from the sounds of it. All right, guys. Thank you for coming. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. Yeah. And tell people one, one more time how to, how to find you. Uh, East Foundation at eastfoundation.net. You guys are based out of? Based out of San Antonio, Texas, but spend our time driving throughout South Texas. And then Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute, and it's based in Kingsville, Texas, Texas A&M University, Kingsville. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. 
This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.